Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman. I am the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail. And this week, I'm really excited. I might even say I'm starstruck because this is a company that has been literally surrounding me my entire life. This week, we have Mary Rogers, who is the Director of Marketing Communications at Cuisinart. Cuisinart is a company that I've used a food processor for since the beginning of time. Like, my mom has always had Cuisinart product, and it's a ubiquitous brand, for me at least. And so I'm really excited to talk with Mary about how she leads marketing for this company that's been around for such a long time and is sort of an invisible staple in so many kitchens. That's a topic that I always think about just as a marketing and retail reporter is these companies that people know but don't necessarily aren't, they're top of mind when they're shopping, but not necessarily when they're at their home, even though they're surrounded by it. All that to say, I'm really excited for this conversation. But Mary, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited and I love seeing your passion for the subject matter. <laughs> I am for cooking and like gadgets are like the confluence of my interests. So this is perfect. So for those who don't know, why don't you just give sort of the the rundown of what you do at Cuisinart? So um, I'm the director of marketing communications, like you said, and I handle all the brand marketing for all products that are in our portfolio. So the areas that I my team works on um, are, it's very diverse. So we do everything from brand marketing, social media, all advertising, public relations. We also run all the D2C business for the company, um, for the brand. I don't want to say the, organ, the company is an organization because um, there's lots of brands in the Conair LLC portfolio. And we also, I also oversee all the research and um, new consumer acquisition. And I say sometimes I do everything but the windows and the yeah. floors. <laughs> um, a whole nother team does all the product development. Got it. And how big is your team out of curiosity? So right now we have seven and we have one open position for a consumer insights analyst. So if there's any great people <laughs> out there, we're looking for somebody. <laughs> wow. So it's seven people who does all of the marketing, DTC, all of that jazz just for, for the entire brand? For the entire brand, yep. That's we're wild. Um, so, But you've been at Cuisinart for a while. Is that true? Yes. So um, I've been, I've had the pleasure of working on the Cuisinart brand for 25 years, Wow! which I just had my 25th anniversary on August 11th. And so, you know, time telescopes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm very passionate about cooking. Um, and I also, I love to travel and I, I have lots of other interests, but, um, you know, it's kind of a natural fit for me. And it's been a great brand to to grow over time. Um, you know, it's and in the marketing space, as you know, that alone has changed so dramatically that that's what keeps it so interesting and exciting. And um, it's kept me here for a lot of reasons. The real reason that I'm still here is because I work on all these exciting aspects of the business. It's not, you know, a lot of people are are, um, you know, sometimes when you get in in uh, certain companies, you're very narrow in your field of vision. And I like that I have a lot of influence over all the um, the brand marketing for the company. Absolutely. It seems like, well, now is an especially exciting time for it to be brand marketing, especially for more traditional or legacy brands, just because it seems that you have more, it, like the, the playbook has opened up a great deal. Am I, am I incorrect in that? 
No, you're very, you know, you're very correct in that. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves on, though, when it comes to marketing for the brand, is that we always tie everything back to strategy. I feel sometimes in the marketing space, people will chase the kind of the latest, greatest. And that's something we don't do. We're very methodical in the way we go about using new marketing channels, new marketing tools. Um, you know, we're very forward thinking though. So, so don't think we're not. But on the other hand, we're very calculating about how we go about whether it's, you know, how to use the TikTok platform or, you know, because I think sometimes marketers get blinded by by like whatever and they get so obsessed with whatever the latest thing is they kind of run off towards that direction and they don't pay as close attention to like the big picture like all of the elements that you need to have aligned and and as you know as marketing has changed so dramatically you're not just looking at you know one or two channels uh, you're talking about you know a vast array of places that you have to put your attention in order to be where your consumers are. And that changes quite rapidly over time. So I want to ask this, and this is a really broad question, but I want to tie it down to sort of when you started at Cuisinart, which is, what is the Cuisinart story? Because I feel like, like, like now brands always have to tell their story about how they began. And I feel like in the 90s, maybe I'm incorrect, but you didn't, that necessarily wasn't the job. You were, you were more selling the products and it was about retail distribution. So like, what has the traditional Cuisinart story been? And then how has that evolved over time? This is interesting. Um, this is before my time, but this is part of the Cuisinart brand story. So when the product first launched in the 70s, it was, you know, one of the categories that changed um, the small appliance business in the United States very dramatically. And interestingly enough, it was so popular when it launched that they sold empty boxes with a certificate in it to get your food processor at a later date. <laughs> Which in, in, you know, for like for this time, you know, that's mind boggling, right? When you're in this D to C e-com business where you get, you know, one to two day instant gratification to imagine that people waited, you know, waited to get the product and paid for it in advance. I mean, you can do that now. You can pre-order things, but like in, in the sense of not getting anything. Um, so that's kind of like some of the histrionics. Some of the other things that people don't know about the company is that, it actually started in 91 and in 90, uh, sorry, in seven, 1971, the company started and they actually started distributing um, European made cookware to gourmet shops, gourmet, small boutique gourmet shops. And then several years later, like two years later in 73, at the International Houseware Show in Chicago, they launched the first food processor um, and that has become basically the the essence of, of what the brand represents. Um, you know, obviously when I first started too, the, the portfolio was, was much, much smaller than it is now. And, you know, now we're in, in lots of, lots, many, many categories in the kitchen. And also we also have, um, outdoor grilling and we just launched air purification. So the company is, is starting to go, you know, beyond the kitchen. Pretty much what was your mandate when you first began brand marketing for Cuisinart? Was it just, you know, it, it seemed like it was probably focused on, sh you know, retail, kitchen shops, that kind of thing. DT, like I imagine DTC was, was not even thought about back then. Actually, 
I, we actually did D to C back then. Really? So you're going to, oh, this is really histrionics now. So believe it or not, I actually was the editor of a direct mail catalog for huh. the company. And every year I put together this like 40 page catalog. I wrote all the copy myself, picked all the products. And we actually did fulfill, you know, old school, like the phone and, you know, we yeah. had order forms. And so we were, we've always been in the D to C business, believe it or not. It's just evolved. Um, and then we got to the point because as you mentioned, you know, a company was originally structured around large distribution, not pick pack. And so we started using a fulfillment company, outside fulfillment company, but the consumer was still shopping on our website in, in an ecosystem where it appeared that we were doing the whole stream, basically. Um, and then in late 2018, I brought that business back in-house because the company spent millions of dollars building a fulfillment center out in Arizona for direct-to-consumer because not only do we fulfill direct-to-consumer orders for ourselves, but we also distribute large quantities to retail partners, but we also fulfill their direct-to-consumer orders. So it also is um, tightens up the whole system, basically, because we're not shipping an item to a retailer who's then shipping an item to a consumer. So you're saving, you're compressing the entire system, basically. So even though we have been in the D2C business all that time, um, I was happy to, uh, let's say, stop editing the direct mail catalog. So instead, now we're editing online, right? And then I, I will also say that when I first started, the one question you asked me about is like, what was my, what, what was my job about? The thing is, the company had really never had somebody like directly in charge of brand marketing. And so it was like, well, the plate was what I made it basically. And so, you know, those opportunities, they don't come along, they don't come around <laughs> much. I mean, I would say, though, it was very traditionally focused on typical marketing channels at that point. You know, print. I launched the first TV campaigns the company ran. You know, um, now those those you know those channels are still super important. Prints become less important. Um, you know, we're still in that space a little bit in, in very endemic um, publications that are that are our core consumer um, actually. Is very engaged with, but um, you know we're in so many more marketing channels now. It's like the list is you know a dozen, if not more. And our, our also the, our strategy has changed dramatically um, in the last several years. We've moved from you know as the company has become larger and the business has become more mature. You know we have um, decided you know, as myself and my team have decided to start working with more, um, you know, specialist areas. So we have agencies that specialize in SEO, SEM. We have agencies that specialize in web development. We also replatformed our entire website last year, 13,000 page website onto a brand new CMS. We're working with, um, it was EpiServer. They just changed their name to Optimizely. And so we're basically, we're like, we can see behind the curtain. We don't have to work through a web development company for every single thing that we do. If we want to add new product, change pricing, you know, build out our own uh, custom content pages, build out a, a gift guide, you know, we can do all of those things 
ourselves. So it's a whole new world for us. And, you know, um, with everything moving towards more headless commerce, you know, we're kind of already there. We're really um, only reliant on our web development company for things that require, you know, code or code changes, um, which is not something we're experts in. Uh, obviously, I'm not a coder. <laughs> Neither am I. There are so many things I want to dive into, but I wanted, I wanted to ask, and this is still another broad question, and then I'll be going d- deeper in. When you, you began and you were doing sort of the first brand marketing for the company, it was pretty ubiquitous at the time. You were saying that, like, people, people knew what the food processor was. It was in and of itself. So, like, and even now as you're doing your brand marketing, as you're opening up to these new channels, I feel like that's a really interesting challenge for marketers when it's, like, not necessarily introducing people to a brand, but also just reminding them that, this is around you, you've seen it, you know who you are. How, how do you approach that from that perspective of being something that's so ubiquitous? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things was this, um, earlier this summer, I took a, a brand strategy course, which I, you're probably saying like, why would you do that? But, <laughs> but you know, sometimes when you're too close to something, it's harder than if you are detached from it, okay? So, one one of the exercises in in the class that I took was um, was getting to the essence of the brand. Like, what does it really stand for? And mm-hmm. and it was it was a lot harder than I I really like sweated that one out. But I would I would say to you, you know, when I first started, because the company had a very manufacturing focused mentality, you know, their tagline was you know the kitchen resource, which of course I was like you know, my mind was blown by that because it was, it was about them and not the consumer. Right. So, you know, making that transition to understanding what it is the consumer wants, expects, what they think of us, all of those things, you know, I actually did a whole brand repositioning um, project early on when I was, when I first started with the company and we ended up, you know, doing a lot of work on repositioning the brand at that point, because the company was so focused on like retail distribution. You know what I mean? That was kind of their their focus at that point, and they needed to transition into more of a um, consumer-focused organization, basically. I mean, our retail partners are obviously super important to us, and we work really closely with them. But at the end of the day, I need to make the brand appealing to the consumer. And if if I could do that and I continue to educate them about, you know, what our latest offerings are, what our innovation is, is in certain categories – you know, we tend to focus on big picture um, items. Um, you know, we have several, in any given year, we have basically three to five products that we focus our marketing efforts on in multi-channel marketing, basically. And so um, that's that's what, that's what my focus is, you know, and I'm constantly learning about my consumer. We just finished, believe it or not, our first ever brand tracker. We finished it a couple months ago, and that has been really enlightening. We, um, in the last two years, we also did a target market analysis and also um, doing a lot more in the market research area for new concepting, which has been, I say, I have a, I have a dream, even I have a dream list, basically. So one of my dreams is like to get in front of the concept, like 
please, please. So we're working on that right now. That's that's huge. And these are the things that keep me excited, right? Because um, we're able to have a big impact on the business and and understand what the consumer's wants and needs are, how we can adjust and modify to become more appealing to their wants and needs, and then obviously motivate them to um, acquire product. That's basically the ecosystem there. And so that's that's really what keeps me excited about it. So you, you said that you've every year you focus on three to five products for multi-channel marketing. Is the food processor always part of it? Is it never part of it? Like, how, how does that work? So interesting um, that you bring this up because uh, obviously the food processor category is iconic to the brand and it's always on the list. At times, sometimes it's getting like the full-blown uh, marketing campaigning plan, and then sometimes it will be getting um, maybe like a step, like a step down. And I'll explain to you why, because you're probably like, why would you do that? So obviously, one of the things that's been a challenge over the last two years is that my team has had to become much more focused on operational issues where we hadn't in the past. And, um, you know, and for many reasons, and this is my, you know, this is by choice for us. It's not saying that, you know, I'm choosing not to do it. I I could because I've seen other brands just continue on their marketing and they're not worried about, do we have product? Do we have distribution? Do, you know, is it, do we have enough distribution? So as you know, um, in many of the categories of consumer product or consumer goods, there is a big, um, influx with challenges in the supply chain. And I'm sure that you've heard this from many, many people. So some of the materials that we use to make certain products are becoming difficult to acquire. Um, I mean, we are really on top of this, believe me, when it comes to, you know, product supply or our, our planning teams all over it. But, um, some of our new product launches had to be delayed slightly in order to be able to get the goods, you know, the raw materials to make the product. So in some cases, we adjusted our marketing campaigning accordingly. Um, and so um, there's some lack of supply of a certain um, product that we make work bowls out of. Um, and so we're still doing, we're still doing a great job marketing and promoting our top selling food processors. But some items that were supposed to come out later this year are being moved into early next year. So um, the answer is we focus on key categories and new product launches. That's usually what we do. And um, it depends on, like I said, we are literally all over inventory supply. Like I, (laughs) I spend every Thursday morning reviewing the inventory for our D2C business. And also anytime we launch any campaign, we also, before before any button is pushed on anything, it doesn't matter what it is, we make sure that we have appropriate supply of goods because there's nothing more infuriating than driving, you know, up demand and there's no supply. Um, yeah, you and can't I've, send out a box anymore that just has a card in it, right? No, no. if I went to somebody with that idea, I'd probably, <laughs> probably get fired. Yeah. <laughs> So how many SKUs do you have in total right now? Oh, my God. I can't believe you asked me this. So on D, I can tell you what it is for D to C. <laughs> sure. D to C is fine. Yeah, tell me. Um, so D to C, we have uh, 205 
finished goods. So for us, finished goods are regular product, full-sized product. And then we have something like, uh, I want to say like 1,100 aftermarket items. So if you have a food processor and you lose a part, or, you know, people have been known to like mistakenly throw something away, you know, like a, a blade or a disc or something night when they're cleaning up. So we have, um, that's what we have there. And, you know, we have, we have like some categories we have like in the gadgets category and the, you know, we have, oh my God, hundreds and hundreds of SKUs. Yeah. So we're in the thousands, definitely. So I want to talk about the 2018 DTC bringing it back in-house. So at a, like at a company like Cuisinart, what are the KPIs you're focused on? for a DTC business? Like, do you, are you looking for a certain percentage of revenue to come from that? Is this all about first party data? Sort of when you're in it, or as you said earlier, is it just so that you can make it easier for your retail relationships for, for things like drop shipping and, and items like that? So like, how, how do you approach all of that? And like, what, like it, do you, do you want it to be a, a, a real important part of the revenue or is that not important? Cause you have so many retail partnerships globally. Oh, there's so many questions in there. I know. (laughs) I hope to get to all of them. (laughs) So so originally I set up the D2C business before it was in-house because I wanted to protect my first party data. I did not want, that's why we use, I used a fulfillment company because I wanted to own the data. I did not want them to own the data. So that was constructed that way on purpose, Um, you know, now, whereas everybody right now scrambling around to figure out how to get first party data. So, you know, organizationally, I don't necessarily know that at the top of the company that they're necessarily thinking on first party data terms themselves. But organizationally, the company wanted to fulfill for retailers because they could then supply them with more options for consumers because certain retailers just did not have the capital to expand their on their own, number one. And then they may have also been limited by the square footage and let's say their brick and mortar. So they looked, the company organizationally looked at it as an opportunity to expand our offering to consumers on the retail, in the retail footprint area. That was one. Um, the other one was that the company does have some expectations of what percentage they would like the D2C business to be. And it's basically, the thought is that, you know, in protection of margin, basically. Um, Because as you know, in the retail space, the demands have gotten greater and greater um, for, as the retailers expand, they're expecting you to invest more in their ecosystem, which then costs you more. Um, and then, as you know, the the new thing now is all these retailers have launched their own media businesses, basically. I mean, um, and in order for them to compete and benchmark against who they see as their biggest competitors. So it's kind of some of all of that. <laughs> it's just at different levels. Um, You know, we also have to be cognizant of being able to expand, you know, slowly, you know, and not necessarily, you know, think that we're going to be 
overnight, you know, um, operating a full on full offering to our consumers. I mean, we're offering our top selling items and, you know, we, I do have plans to expand before fall, but there's so many, and it's funny too, because I've gotten into conversations with people at the company and they're like, it's, it's easy. Just add another product to the website. I'm like, Mm -hmm. This is not how this works. Yeah, <laughs> and I've been, you know, I've been. It's it's been said to me like you're underestimating yourself, and it's like I don't think you realize how much work's involved in getting just a product online. Okay, yeah. let me go through it. <laughs> um, and because we have a, you know, basically a, a headless website, we have to. We have like four touch points where we have to have all the stars aligned. So that, you know, our ERP is driving the data to our, our, you know, Salesforce Commerce Cloud site that then is pulling an API from the website into Salesforce Commerce Cloud to know if an item is available. I mean, if, if you, like yesterday, I was like looking at something and I'm like, why is this item not in the top five anymore? Like, like what happened? Well, somebody, some developer went in and they changed the capital letters to small letters <laughs> and then the product went offline. And it's like, it took me like, it, I was like, why is this? You know, we're like checking every place that we can check. And it turned out some developer was testing something and forgot to put it back the way it was. So um, I spend a lot of time in our Google merchant feed every morning. I'm in there. I'm in Salesforce Commerce Cloud every morning. I'm like, I'm running a business basically yeah. on, the si- on the side of marketing. <laughs> so when you're doing like search marketing, if you're doing a Google ads, for example, where are you sending that traffic? Are you sending that to Amazon? Are you sending that to Walmart? Are you sending that to your own website? Is it like, how, how do you approach that? So we are, we pride ourselves right now on being retailer agnostic Yes. So we have um, we have brand marketing and we have D to C marketing. So yeah. we, it's split up. So the way the website is constructed, we have a partner called um, Numerator. Um, used to be like Channel IQ, which runs our back end where to buy the product. So the consumer is driven to the website, but when they get to the website, they have the choice of who they decide to buy it from. So they can buy it from us. They can buy it from a retailer. We present them with all the options and they they can choose accordingly. Um, so we, you know, the, the money that we spend in our brand budget is, is only spent driving the business for the brand. The retailers, you know, they have their cooperative advertising and also they do run programs, you know, with the retailers on their media properties and that is supported by the co-op advertising that the retailer agreement covers basically. And so my, somebody on my team though, like this is something that I, I had her start doing a couple of years ago is very involved in those programs with the retailer because many times salespeople are not educated in, let's say all those types of digital marketing advertising I mean, and she's doing a, a great job educating them, but, you know, we're also trying to make sure that, that we are driving the brand, both on the retail side and the brand side, so that everybody's marching in the same direction. And we're very transparent about all the marketing that we're doing. We share that with all our salespeople, all of our retail accounts, because we want everybody, you know, um, capitalizing on what we're doing. I want to talk 
about the brand marketing side, because you said something interesting earlier, which is that even for new channels, everything goes back to strategy. And so talk to me how you approach a new channel like TikTok that does go back. Like what, what are, what, how do you approach that in terms of your messaging, who you're targeting and what is the overall strategy? Yeah. So it's interesting because that channel runs a lot younger. Yeah. And what we do is um, we do a lot of research around the channel, um, the consumers who are on the channel, what types of material and contents on the channel, what's popular, what people are engaging in. And, you know, TikTok's also um, very video driven. And um, we are, you know, our job is to bring new consumers to the brand. So we see TikTok as kind of a new entry point possibly for our brand, you know, because in the past, we always saw our customer coming to the brand when they were buying a new home or getting married, like getting married was kind of like yeah. the tr- the big trigger. That's that's gone. <laughs> Be- no, I'm not saying getting married's gone, but <laughs> <laughs> but I want my point is that um, consumers are not taking a direct line through their life to, through certain milestones that used to exist ten years ago. Even um, many people are cohabitating. Um, they're expanding their families. They are sometimes getting married, sometimes choosing not to, um, you know, and so we have to understand, you know, uh, the big picture, like, where are our consumers? Like, we know right now, a lot of people are moving. So we're very focused on, you know, understanding the needs of consumers who are moving from apartments to homes, or maybe homes to, for you know, maybe not as close to urban areas anymore. So we're very focused on that because we know that there's a big difference between when a person lives in an apartment versus when they live in a, a larger space that their needs and their inventory of our types of products expands um, as their footprint expands into a, a larger space. But, you know, we look at TikTok as a new opportunity to um, drive brand awareness in a younger audience that may not have any awareness of the brand. And so, um, and, you know, also, you know, TikTok has a big focus on like recipes and things that are, you know, uh, that we can tie into that we know that our customers are highly engaged in. We know that from our own web property and our email campaigning, you know, consumers are always looking for great ideas for new recipes, new variety, um, as people have spent, you know, more time home, um, or even in a hybrid situation, um, which is what we're in right now, we're in a, a 50% hybrid, you know, all of those needs have changed, right? And there's also been, um, I would say, possibly some some fatigue and also not just fatigue, but also boredom, <laughs> you know, where you kind of get in that rut and you're like, you know, so I we look at that as a, as a good um, good way for us to enter that channel still stay true to our brand, but also be bringing young consumer, younger consumers to the brand and still appealing to our normal core consumer too, obviously. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to do anything that is going to, um, you know, go against our core principles when it comes to our core consumer, basically. 
Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. All right. This is my last question, um, but I, I really need to know. Um, so talk to me about product expansion or, you know, new, or going into new new types of products. You said you, you're now in um, air purification. W- what made Cuisinart decide to go into air purification and sort of how do you approach where it is that you expand to? Yeah. So um, that you know, we're always looking at categories we're not in, obviously. And in the case of air purification, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a category that is a very hot category. It has been for the last year or so for many reasons. Um, obviously, indoor air quality is a concern for consumers. Also, allergies, you know, wildfires, you know, we know there's many different reasons why consumers are interested in air purification. And, you know, because we look at those white spaces, like where do we have opportunities to expand? You know, we started with a kitchen air purifier, which was more, um, is more positioned for things like, you know, cooking odors, you know, that type of thing. But we also have a large, um, large room air purifier, which does about a thousand square feet. But, you know, interesting for me, though, is that when we get into these categories, we want to learn a lot, right? Because we, um, we know that consumers are going to be thinking about it, you know, using it in their bedroom, using it in their den, their living room, their home office, you know, all the places that they're spending a lot more time in and a lot more time indoors. So when we're like developing content and, um, you know, and support and marketing materials for these items, you know, we are looking at every place a consumer might consider using the product in their home gym because, you know, home gyms can tend to be, you know, you go in there, you, I don't have a home gym. I should, but I don't, um, <laughs> that's I don't one have thing one either. Don't worry. <laughs> that's one thing that's fallen off my list of to do's this is, yeah. is, is the exercise. Um, but anyway, we're looking at it from many different angles. And, you know, when you think of things like air purification, you know, this is our first product in the home environment. So it opens a whole new playing field for us in home environment because there's many other products in home environment you know, such as dehumidifiers, which tends to be, you know, um, one of the items that that is is super similar to um, that category. So um, the company is always looking at new opportunities and new applications, um, and then also how we can innovate in those in those categories too as we um, expand. Because the other thing people don't realize too is that we we launch products and they stay in the line quite a long time. Like we're talking about a, a product that we've been selling since the seventies and, and we are still selling the classic version, which is the, you know, similar, similar model to the earlier, to the earlier uh, ones that are very popular. Still one of our most popular items too. So we don't just like launch items and then they're out of the line. Like, you know um, we, we tend to look for long term growth um, and not products because it's also a lot of people don't realize this, but it's also extremely expensive to just make the first one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very high capital, um, you know, intense product category. Um, appliances are um, non, you know, non electric appliances like cookware, bakeware, gadgets, you know, obviously um, those have a, a low risk low capital expenditure. And that's why you also tend to see a lot of people in those categories. It's a lot more expensive to 
launch a product in the small appliance category just to make unit one. So it's not the type of business where you just make products to make them and then you're going to walk away from them. Um, That's not an easy thing to do. So that's why there are no DTC small appliance brands. They're only cookware. (laughs) It's true, you know. (laughs) No, it's true. You you see them, but you know it's a lot less expensive. I mean, it depends on how much effort and like and how much um, how much you put into like the design of the product. Um, because I'm, you know, there's lots of ways around the system where you could be working with an overseas manufacturer who's maybe tooled up some things, and you're, you know, we call it off the shelf um, because you're just like putting it together and then making it and selling it, right? Not necessarily putting any effort into research, any effort into studying the marketplace or what the consumer needs are. You know, you take in a handle, you put it in on a, you know, a very, it's also very hard in the cookware category to innovate. You know, um, it's a very hard category to innovate in because it's, you know, a vessel, a stick, you know, it's it's not easy. Um so you'll see a lot of, a lot more like maybe in the design area or the coatings or um, areas like that. That's where people try to, to differentiate, basically. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Mary, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was really interesting. And thank you for your passion for the subject matter. Anytime. I will continue cooking and using my Cuisinart food processor. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.